Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Kirsten Jensen and Sean Waldron, authors of Charles Sheeler, Fashion, Photography, and Sculptural Form. Our guests today are Sean Waldron and Kirsten Jensen, and they are contributors to this book, Charles Sheeler, Fashion, Photography, and Sculptural Form. Uh, we'll start with you, Kirsten. How did this book come about? Well, I um, have been interested in the work of Charles Sheeler for a very long time, ever since graduate school. And um, while I was doing research on him for a paper I was writing um, in my graduate program, I came across this little footnote that he had worked for Condé Nast. And that's an aspect of his career. If you read books about his photography, his painting, they cover it in one paragraph and they allied over it even though it consumed about five years of his career um, while he was starting to make a name for himself as a painter and also working as a commercial photographer for other advertising um, purposes. So um, when I came to the Michener Museum, uh, it seemed a, a nice um, time to investigate that subject because Charles Sheeler, who was born and raised in Philadelphia and studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, rented a house in Doylestown for almost 20 years. And so he was a Doylestown resident. And if you walk out the door of the Michener Art Museum, very few people remember that. Um, so I thought, well, this is a nice opportunity for us to celebrate an aspect of his career for which he is perhaps not well known at all and um, explore an aspect of a leading American modernist artist um, in a new way. So that's how the project started. And um, once we received funding from the Pew Center for Arts um, and, uh, and Heritage, we um, began to um, develop a relationship with Sean, who was then the director of archives at Condé Nast. And because what I really wanted to do was see, is there a there there? You know, is, was his photography for Condé Nast interesting at all? Was it compelling enough to do a show and, and a book? Or was it? really just worth ignoring in the way that all the other scholars of Sheeler had done. And once um, Sean and I started to pull out all the boxes of photographs at Condé Nast, we began to think, I think there's a there there. There's something really interesting and compelling about his fashion photographs that tie directly to the art that he made before he started working for the firm and then what came later, which is really the body of work that he's the best known for. For people who know nothing about him, mm -hmm. what, what should they know? Well, Sheeler was an amazing artist because he was uh, had incredible facility across all media. If you look, um, he originally began as a painter and studied with William Merritt Chase at, um, at PAFA um, and painted in a very impressionist style. But 
as he um, began to make a several trips over to Europe and became exposed to European modernism, to Cezanne particularly, he began to paint in a more modern fashion, employing aspects of Cezanne um, and Fauvism in his paintings. And at that point in time, modern art was not very popular with collectors and so he needed to make a living. So he started working as a photographer for architects and realtors taking photographs of buildings. And that sort of, I think, started him thinking about structural photography, straight photography, which means um, really using a strong straight focus on a particular subject rather than trying to be more atmospheric in your approach, right? Having a very soft, gauzy um, atmosphere in your photograph. And he then turned his camera to Doylestown, to the house where he was living, and also to the barns um, in the region. In fact, he became very well known for that particular body of work initially when it was exhibited in New York in 1917. So his photography at that point in time was really what he began to make a name for himself um, but he also was painting as well and beginning to explore um, the same kinds of straight edges and very linear perspectives that he was exploring in his um, photographs in his paintings. Um, so he's particularly known for his industrial subjects and as being one of the founders of an art movement that we call um, precisionism, which is where you explore very straight geometric surfaces, particularly looking at industry or city subjects. Um, there's really an absence of people. The interest is in the geometry, in the atmosphere, um, and not portraying any um, evidence of the painter. So you can't really see brush strokes on the canvas in the way that you could say in John Sloan or Robert Henry, who are much more painterly in their effects. Um, so he was, um, by the time he was working at Condé Nast, he was still trying to make a living um, as a painter and as a photographer, sort of using both, and he was feeding off of each media. So he might photograph a subject and then explore it in a painting or explore it in a drawing. Or, so he went across media um, to really explore his subjects to greater depth. and. Um, by the 1930s, he was recognized as one of the leading American modernist um, artists and um, really was um, incredibly well-respected until his death in the 60s. So. Sean, how did you get involved in this project? So, uh, well, three years ago, I received a, a, you know, a call from Kirsten about it. At the time, I was the director of the archive at, at Condé Nast. Um, and you know, we are always interested in promoting the artists that are contained within the archive at Condé Nast. So this was an interesting uh, proposition. This is someone who, um, you know, that period of Scheeler's work was not really explored deeply. Uh, I was always interested by the work. I'm interested by 1920s photography in particular. And so when she called, it was like, great, yeah, sign us up. I'm Did ready you know to what you had in the archive? Yeah, we had a sense that everything uh, has long been cataloged at, at Condé Nast. Uh, and so we knew that we had some work there. I knew that it had been published. I'd seen all the published works. I knew that we didn't have everything that had been published. Um, you know, these commercial archives can, some things last and some things don't. Uh, Condé Nast is better than most in that it kept and maintained a lot of its uh, material for in good condition. 
Uh, and so when she approached us about this idea and I said, well, come on up and take a look at the work. Mm -hmm. And we started just really rolled up our sleeves and dove into the archive and pulled them, as she said, pulled the boxes out and started looking at work. And it was really what convinced her, I think, that yeah. let's, let's push this a little further and let's explore this topic. And again, for people who don't know, what is Condé Nast? So Condé Nast is a publishing company. Uh, it's been around for over 100 years. It was founded by a man named Condé Nast. That is actually his, his name. Condé Montrose Nast is his full name. Uh, he started it in 1909 uh, when he purchased Vogue, which of course is probably the most well-known, but there's others, Vanity Fair, Glamour, House and Garden, Architectural Digest, uh, GQ, Wired. Condé Nast owns a lot of different media properties uh, now. So, uh, but in the beginning, it was just start started out when Condé Nast purchased Vogue, which had been around since 1892, uh, and eventually he launched Vanity Fair soon after, and then took over House and Garden as well. So that was kind of the core three magazines that he had for the first 40 years or so that he was running the company. And it was around 1917 or the late teens that that. Uh... 26. Um, Sheila started working for um, Condé Nast in 1926, but he had been published uh, several years before in terms of just his, his art mm -hmm. photography, what you would term art photography. So um, photographs of um, still lifes. So, um, and so I think, you know, and this is something that we've talked about, is that Condé Nast and Frank Crowninshield, his editor, were very interested in modernizing, bringing to the to Vanity Fair and to Vogue as well, this sort of modernist sensibility, and right. so they started publishing articles about leading American modernists and talking about Stieglitz and talking about, you know, um, John Marin and um, Duchamp, and so they really Picasso, started they were Picasso, one of the first to publish yeah, Brancusi, yeah. and in you know in the tw early twenties, Sheeler's photographs of. Brancusi's in the John Quinn collection were actually published to accompany this long essay about Brancusi the sculptor. And so he started to appear in the magazine as part of this effort to bring... And the um, barn photographs, and, too. Right, they exactly. They had published the, the, a, story, a picture story on you know, the beautiful barns of Bucks County, and they mm -hmm. had used uh, some of Schiller's pictures in the teens. So he was definitely yeah. a known entity mm -hmm. to both uh, Condé Nast and then Frank Crowninshield, who was the editor-in-chief mm -hmm. of Vanity Fair at the time. So. And he was also friends with Edward Steichen, who from 1923 was the head of photography at Condé Nast. And so um, Steichen actually approached Schiller and said, would you like to come and work with me as a staff photographer? Um, taking pictures of, you know, of models dressed up in the latest couture fashions, but also for Vanity Fair, celebrities, authors, um, early film stars, theater stars, etc., that they would publish these little one-page pieces on, sort of talking about who they are and what picture or what theater production they were appearing in on Broadway. Did he ever write about how he felt about taking a day job? <laughs> he said it was like a daily trip to jail. Mm -hmm. And and really that's the sentence that everyone has um, has really focused on and said, well, then he obviously didn't like what he was doing and he obviously didn't want to keep it up for very long. But if you're saying that and you continue to work for a firm for five years, that sort of says to me you're getting something else out of it. Sure, he was getting paid very well for that point in time, but I also think that he began to 
see it as a way to work out some of the compositional things that he was wrestling with in his other work, his non-day job work. And you can see that start to filter into his photographs, particularly his photographs um, for Vanity Fair, which became very structured um, in his approach. And I actually think influenced Dyken and other photographers who came to the, the firm after him. How much latitude did he have in, in setting up the photographs and deciding how mm -hmm. they would look? And, and did he ever have disagreements with his editors over how far he went? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think he probably had much less latitude for fashion photographs, right? The, 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 the MO of a fashion photograph is to sell the dress. <laughs> so he had to photograph the, the dress or the hat or the jewelry or whatever it was that the model was wearing in a way that would sell the product. And so he would have editors who were there saying, photograph from this direction, photograph from this. But he still had some degree of latitude, I believe, in terms of posing the model and picking the location. Oftentimes they would use Condé Nast's own apartment as a photo location. It was sort of a second studio, and Sean can speak to this more than I can in terms of how they really used it. But you can see in the photographs, as you look over time, they're using the same backdrop. It's the same foyer. It's this, so it's really, but it was this right. very um, wealthy, you know, very well decorated apartment. So it also um, exuded those characteristics of the lifestyle that the readers of Vogue would be aspiring to, right? That that New York classic six or what have you um, that was decorated by a leading um, designer. Right, yeah, so in the mid-20s, Condé Nast built a penthouse on Park Avenue, 86th Street, um, uh, 1040 Park, and he took the top floor of the building, um, and they actually added on the roof, they built a ballroom for him, basically. So normally with a penthouse, you have the uh, down, the ground floor would be the ballroom or sort of the public areas, and then the bedrooms are up, up on the second floor. He reversed it so that he had all of the private uh, areas where, as you entered into the building, on the top, what was the top floor. But then you went upstairs to essentially to the roof deck, and you were, that's where the grand ballroom was. And then they had a covered area you could walk out with views of Manhattan. And so it was, and it was a legendary place. He was uh, divorced at the time, Nast was. He was in between, he had two wives, so he was in between wives. And Frank Crowninshield actually uh, moved in with him. They became sort of uh, like a couple of bros, you know, like throwing big parties. <laughs> and so they were, uh, and he, a lot of what they call cafe society sort of started at Condé Nast's apartment. He was taking the women uh, from the 400, you know, the leading sort of high society, uh, in New York at the time and seating them next to someone like Charlie Chaplin at a party. And they had never met anyone like Charlie Chaplin mm -hmm. and Charlie Chaplin had never really met anyone like them. So it was sort of this mixing of the high and the low and mm -hmm. the new celebrities uh, with the old guard uh, in New York. And so a lot of this was happening on, up at the penthouse and it was designed by Elsie DeWolf, did all the interior decoration. and. Um, so in the beginning, they didn't really have a working studio, and, mm -hmm. and Steichen didn't when he began, so they just used Condé's place because mm -hmm. it had all the latest furnishings in it. So, so who read uh, Vanity Fair and Vogue in the 1920s? So it was, uh, well, they were different readerships, but they came sort of from the same sort of social group, right? I mean, it was 
Uh, it's always been a, a lifestyle magazine. It's an aspirational magazine. So there was people that were certainly wanted to be in the know about the latest and greatest in terms of fashion, trends, art, culture, high society. Um, Vanity Fair was a little bit tailored more, skewed a little bit more male. Uh, Vogue skewed a little bit more female in terms of the readership. Um, but, you know, Conde Nast had sort of come up with this concept that he called class publications. And his idea was that we will create a magazine that targets very specifically a certain uh, class, meaning classification of, pe of person, right? So and he went after the biggest earners because those were the people that advertisers wanted to get to, right? So his idea was if we can create a magazine that wants to be read and talked about uh, by the top 1%, right? Um, then these are we're going to be able to get the advertising that will back it up, and so you saw that in the advertising that was there. You know, it was the best motor cars and Remington typewriters and Vuquicot champagne and you know the best hat companies and the high fashion, and so they they really had the best in terms of advertising. How did the magazines do during the depression? So the depressions were very hard yeah. uh, on the magazine <laughs> business, actually. Um, Vanity Fair ended up folding in 1936. It actually closed because of the general decline overall in terms of more general interest magazines, right? And so it was folded into Vogue for actually until 1983 is when it relaunched again. So um, there's a long pe period when it wasn't around. Um, but it was always incorporated. If you read the Vogue's from those at uh, that time, if you pick it up, it says Vogue incorporating Vanity Fair. So, you know, Conde Nast was always hopeful that it would come around again, and, and it was relaunched again in 1983. So. Kirsten, the uh, director's foreword in this book, which was not written by you, says, Scheeler's Condé Nast photography has been almost universally dismissed as purely commercial, a painter's day job and nothing more, and mm -hmm. thus it has yet to be considered seriously by scholars of American art. What made you want to seriously consider it? <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, there's this real interesting dichotomy in the art world where we like to think that artists exist in this vacuum and they can just paint and you know food and housing will come to them <laughs> even if they're not selling paintings right but artists need money too and you know so lots of artists over time edward hopper um, nc wyeth of course most famously um, engaged in commercial activity, whether it was making paintings for advertisements or taking photographs as, as photomechanical reproduction processes made that possible. And, but the art world, the scholarly world, has always looked down its nose at commercial versus fine art um, work. Now, is there really a distinction? You know, if from my perspective, I think, um, Fashion photography certainly now is embraced as being a fine art. When you think about exhibitions of Man Ray's photography, Cecil Beaton's and Richard Avedon Irving and Irving Penn. Penn. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when American art as a, as a, as a scholarly entity of art history um, really looked down its nose at fashion photography, it was commercial, it was frou-frou, well, you know, it wasn't serious. And it wasn't until 1979 when Nancy Hall Duncan published what was the first history of fashion photography that scholars really began to take fashion photographs seriously as fine art. But Sheeler, because um, 
he has always had this very specific focus, part of the Stieglitz circle, until he and Stieglitz had sort of this falling out. And we'd like to sort of keep him in this nice, clean, modernist box. We celebrate his other commercial photography, most famously for Ford Motor Company, um, and his industrial photographs of the new River Rouge plant. He also took photographs of the cars themselves for Ford publications. Um, spark plugs and spark tires? Spark plugs and tires, typewriters, um, motion picture cameras. You know, so I mean, uh, he really did do a broad, broad range of commercial photography. and. Those have been published in crystalline pictures, reproductions in scholarly books on Sheeler, but with the exception of one or two photographs, no one has ever really delved into the portraits um, and the fashion shoots that he did for um, Condé Nast. And to me, that's just, I love to explore the unexplored. I mean, anybody can take a look at an aspect of a famous artist's career and, and look at it again and again and maybe find something new to talk about in comparing them with another artist or with a, an author they may be familiar with. But to me, having a big body, almost 300 photographs that no one's ever seen before made by a famous American artist, to me, that's, that's you know, that's man. I want to go find out what it is. And, um, you know, just because other people have looked down their noses at it doesn't mean that it's not important, particularly from the perspective now of now that fashion photography, fashion exhibitions, I mean, you know, the Met major fundraiser every year is the fashion gala, right? I mean, so it's become a very important aspect of our culture. And we're starting to really revisit um, photographers who were engaged in um, that, you know, that mode, whether it was that was their entire career or it was just a small aspect of their career like Charles Sheeler. So to me, that's really exciting is to tease out a narrative of an artist that you thought you knew everything about. And we discovered as we were working on this project that in many cases, scholars didn't even turn over photographs to see what was on the back. You know, they just really just sort of reproduced all the photographs that had been reproduced before and never really bothered to go see what else was in the archive. So I think I was the first one to really personally look at what was in the archive. Is his name on the back of all the ones he did? Well, yes, so he's stamped. And in fact, a number of photographs we discovered in this project had been attributed to other photographers. And, you know, we we just, there was one that had been attributed to Cecil Beaton. It was a photograph of Norma Shearer right at the beginning of her career. And Beaton had actually taken that photograph to his studio as source material. And it stayed there. Um, his photograph of Norma Shearer was in 1930. Um, Sheeler photographed Shearer a number of times. This was from the 1926 shoot. And um, it was an outtake. And so it wasn't the published photograph, it was an outtake. And it was stamped beaten on the back, but I called up Sean and I said, Sean, she's wearing the same thing she wore when Sheeler photographed her in 1926. Would a leading MGM actress wear the same outfit four years later <laughs> to pose again for 
um, another photographer. And you know, so we did some comparisons. She's sitting in the same chair. She's sitting in the same spot in Condé Nast apartment. So it's Sheeler's photograph. Um, and there were other photographs that had been in the past attributed to Steichen, um, his series of photographs of uh, Charles, uh, Georges Carpentier, who was a um, French vaudeville star and um, boxer. and fought Jack Dempsey at the yes. sesquicentennial <laughs> exhibition in yes. Philadelphia. Yes, he did. And he was, you know, he was uh, no longer successful as a boxer, and so he was transitioning into this vaudeville and film career. And he later became this restaurateur in Paris. So he was a very dashing man, um, known for his skill as a dancer. And Sheeler made these beautiful, absolutely stunning photographs of him. And some cataloger had not looked at the actual magazine at some point in time to see Sheeler's name because they were credited um, usually at somewhere on the page. Um, not always, but sometimes, uh, or most of the time. And But they had stamped Steichen on the back of these because they looked like Steichen's photographs of Charlie Chaplin. And so, you know, the question which we didn't really tease out in the book at all is who influenced who, you know, with Steichen those photographs. Was, was Schiller's boss at, yes. at Vanity Fair? Or at, at yeah, yeah, so Steichen came in 1923 uh, to Condé Nast. Uh, he had had a bitter divorce. Uh, he was living in France at the time. He had, the story goes that he had given up his painting career with a very dramatic bonfire in this back garden of all his paintings because he was just fed up with it. And Which so is horrifying because they were amazing <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the story goes that uh, his, his one day his gardener had a, a painting and he said, oh, that's beautiful, who did that? And the gardener said, oh, I did. And Steichen said, well, that's better than anything I could ever do. And like, that was it for him. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but he had ended up, landed back in New York uh, in 1923 looking for a job, seen himself actually a picture of himself in the latest issue of Vanity Fair declaring him to be the greatest living uh, portrait photographer who unfortunately had given up the camera for the for the, the palette I think yeah. it said right yeah. and so um, Steichen called up Cronenshield and said hey I love my picture in it you got it wrong though I've actually given up the canvas and I'm picking up the camera again and so Crown Shield said, well, why don't we have lunch and let's talk? And almost immediately he was hired as the new chief photographer for Condé Nast. Uh, and so he, as part of that role, uh, once he settled in, he set about recruiting and bringing in new talent, Sheeler being, I think, the first hire yeah. that he had. So As you go through old Condé Nast magazines, can you tell that the photographs change when, when Sheeler arrives or when Steichen arrives? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's a, a mark change uh, in 24, 25, where yeah. things go sort of that that old aesthetic that Kirsten had alluded to before, that sort of soft focus, uh, luminescent uh, look that was made so popular in the teens, particularly by Baron de Meyer, who was Steichen's predecessor as the chief photographer there, um, got swept out. It really did. You know, the sort of avant-garde came in, Art Deco style, that clean, precise, you know, everything was focused on the industrial, right, and the urban in environment, and you see that right away uh, in the change. Steichen was a pictorialist himself mm -hmm. for many, many years. He started out even you know, for maybe about six or eight months where he was doing sort of more pictorialist style, but then it gets swept right out and the magazine immediately gets mm -hmm. modernized. Uh, Kirsten, can you, if you look at an array of photographs, can you look at one and say, oh, that looks like a Sheeler? Yeah, 
I think I have a pretty good eye. You know, I mean, when we're paging through, there were some that hadn't been cataloged that we said, wait a second, that, you know, that's a Sheeler. And, um, you know, it's, so it's really, he does have a very particular aesthetic. It's very clean. He's very clean, very crisp. He doesn't a lot, like a lot of background information. Um, and when there is background information, he finds a way to um, bring, to focus that out, you know, to really, um, it's in the background, but it's not the focus of his picture. And then he brings in other aspects of the environment. So for example, a very, one of my favorite photographs um, of a, you know, a leading socialite in Condé Nast's apartment. And she's sitting in this very opulent chair in front of this um, decorative screen that both Sheeler and, and Steichen use quite a lot. And they, he put it in front of a window so that you get the, this column of light shining through the window, almost exactly aligned with the sitter's head, and cr creating this dynamism, which directly goes back to what he is photographing when he's photographing aspects of his um, house in Doylestown, that really looking at light and shadow and bringing in just very simplified lines um, and geometrical design, which you might think might be in some ways anathema to fashion photography, but he makes it work. And you really get this sense of stillness that he's looking at his subjects like their sculptures, like their works of art, which he had also had a, a side career um, doing in the late teens and 20s for leading modernist galleries. They would bring him in as their gallery photographer, taking photographs of works of art, particularly sculpture. And I think with that is when he really started to develop this aesthetic of how to capture a figure in space that he then transferred onto his living, breathing uh, models. But when you look at them, they do have these qualities, the way that he poses them and the way that he uses light, very sculptural, almost three-dimensional, but yet flattened in the picture plane. It's a very interesting idea that goes right back to Cezanne, right? One of the things that we um, really celebrate about Cezanne is his ability to create this sense of three dimension on a two dimensional picture plane and using light and shadow as a means to achieve that. And I think you can page through the years of um, Vogue and Vanity Fair and you can start to say, that's beaten. That's Sheeler. That's Horst. You really get a sense of the way that they compose their photographs, and it becomes a signature for them. And for me, it's too bad that Sheeler didn't continue to work for um, Condé Nast really after, 30, after um, 1929. He's employed until about 1931, but the bulk of his photographs are 1926 to 1929. But it would be interesting to see what he would have done had he continued to follow that line of work. Because I think by 28, he had this really incredible aesthetic that you then see applied to later work when he's working as a photographer for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So if you compare his early sculptural photographs with his later sculptural photographs, the uh, 
incredible development of technique in terms of light and shadow to really give you a sense of that sculptural piece, I think is directly tied to the body of work that he did in between, which is his fashion photography. Um, but you really do get a sense when you look at something that that's a Steichen, that's a Scheeler. And I can look at some Steichen photographs that were made not too long after Scheeler left, and I can see Scheeler's influence on the composition and the arrangement and how Steichen is um, setting his photograph up. Did Scheeler's uh, technique, art, whatever you want to call it, evolve in the five years he was doing fashion photography? Could you tell, was there a, a look to his earlier stuff versus the, the end of the five-year stretch? I think technically he got better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, creating a photograph for the printed page in a studio on an 8x10 camera you know, a plate camera is not easy. Uh, and then, especially in the 20s, where you had long exposure times, the lighting setups were complicated and very bright. And so, technically, there's a challenge to it, you know, to learn to, you know, photography very much is an art and a science, right? And, and you have to get all that right before you can make a great picture. And it's really easy, actually, to ruin a great picture if you don't get all that right. So, I think you see. Uh, even the way that it's framed for the printed page, um, you know, Steichen uh, did a sets of uh, did this set of experiments basically, where he set up uh, an apple or a peach or a cup and saucer and photographed them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times from different angles using different lighting setups to see how they would look on the printed page when he began this career, because he just had to figure it out and get it right. So you certainly see that, you know, mm -hmm. Scheler. Um, definitely developed technically over the time and by the end uh, of the five years his pictures were technically composition wise and even just the, the focus the lighting everything w was better but that yeah. you know I mean, he learned on the job a little bit. How much of these pictures that appear in the book are uh, the result of what happened in the studio as opposed to what happened in the darkroom? So I think it's all about yeah. in the studio. Yeah right? it's so, a studio. Yeah I mean really? the, they had they would have had a set of darkroom assistants who were handling processing all the film. Um, oh, he didn't do his he, own. Uh, right, right. Mm -hmm. So, um, because it was very much almost set up, you think, like a Hollywood studio, right? So, I mean, they were cranking through these shoots and doing them over the course of the day. The photographer was very much responsible for uh, bringing the model in, posing them, mm -hmm. had a lot of input and total control over how the set would look, how the lighting would look, how they set up, the way they used props and things like that. They were constantly experimenting. Um, and sometimes kind of cribbing off each other mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, but uh, the darkroom print, because when you're actually going to a halftone and going to press, you have to print it in a certain way. It looks a little different than it would uh, a fine art print, for instance. Um, there's less contrast and things like that. So there's sort of a technical side of it. And, and there was actually retouching that was done, too. There would have been a retouching mm -hmm. team. They were hand retouching then, uh, you know, no Photoshop in the 20s. Right. But, um, you know, so all of that would have done by, by darkroom assistance. Yeah. And so. for people who like photography, can, can you talk a little more about the camera he used? You said it's a... So, yeah, so it's an 8 by 10, right? So, the um, you know, it's a big box camera on a tripod. Uh, with a, so an 8x10 would be an actual the size of the negative that would get put in, uh, placed in, exposed. And then the prints, a, a lot of the prints that were used in the show, they would print with made a contact print. So you essentially would take an 8x10 piece of paper, put the negative right on top of it, and expose it to light. So And that gives you the ultimate in terms of sharpness and pinpoint mm -hmm. accuracy. Um, but your exposure has to be perfect for that reason, right? Um, 
and the film was a little slower than it might have been a 30 second exposure or even 15 seconds tops if it was really really lit so you couldn't burn in one section or dodge so yeah that, it could have that that could have happened a little mm. bit if needed in the dark you know very mm. traditional in terms of photography you know hand printing are all the negative negatives still at uh, Condé Nast so a lot of the negatives have not survived over time um, a lot of them have just deteriorated as they do over time or they've gotten what we call vinegar syndrome right. or these sort of because uh, they kind of let off this acetic acid smell that smells like vinegar when you walk into an archive a lot of the, especially photographic archives you get this really whiff of vinegar that you smell mm -hmm. and that's deteriorating film mm -hmm. I mean don't forget these things are now you know right, 89 almost 100 years old, years old. <laughs> um, so the prints are actually much more stable long term than the negatives are in mm -hmm. many ways so um, when I was at Condé Nast we did a big investment we built a cold storage and so a lot of the material the negatives are stored are stored in, in cold storage now to help preserve them mm -hmm. how did you decide which pictures were in the book and which ones were not that, you know, that's always a, a difficult decision. In many, in some cases, it was, um, you know, were our other authors referencing them and giving a lot of attention to a particular um, photograph? So that would, you know, necessarily indicate that, that for whatever reason, that scholar thought that that was an important photograph to reproduce. Um, a lot of it was my own aesthetic appreciation of the particular photograph or seeing in certain photographs connections between the other bodies of his work in terms of composition um, and light and shadow and uh, sometimes they those photographs uh, for Condé Nast happened before his more iconic photographs sometimes they draw from that earlier body of work um, so I really wanted to give a sense of the um, depth of what he did for both magazines because both the fashion and the portrait photographs I think are equally compelling. They're not all exciting. I mean some of them it's interesting because he from my opinion I think Steichen didn't like to do the hat photo shoots, right? I don't I don't think he was interested in the hat shots. He wanted to do the, the you know the high wattage models and he wanted to do the glamour and the, you know the real important subjects for Vanity Fair and of course he was the boss so he could do it. <laughs> but Sheeler I think because of his experience photographing sculpture was really seen as the guy who could really nail down a good photograph of a hat because you think about women's hats in the 20s right you have that close it's very close to the head it's like a helmet and you know it's for to actually shoot that so it looks good on the model and so it looks good on the page I think really requires a skilled photographer who is not maybe necessarily looking at the person wearing the hat but looking at the hat itself so but a lot of those photographs are then pared down so that all you see is just the head with the hat on it because that's what they're selling. But when we started to look at some of those photographs in their entirety, right, the whole 8x10 photograph, you start to see elements of what Sheeler is doing compositionally. So he knew probably that this was just a hat photo and it was going to get pared down but oh, they cropped his photograph well you know you magazine? think about your you're focusing just on the head so you might have an oval around mm -hmm. it and the rest is you know maybe there might be three or four of those on a page and so you're not getting the whole photograph 
but when you start to look at the original, you see all of these interesting things that he's doing with light and shadow and posing and how he is situating the sitter in the middle of the page and you know, but you don't see that on the printed in the printed magazine. And so it's really interesting once you start to look at these photographs in their entirety, you see things. And so I wanted to bring in a different, um, a selection of both the Vanity Fair photographs, which have a different um, look and feel, and the Vogue photographs, which of course are, have a little bit more glamour to them than, um, say, the, um, you know, the portrait of, you know, uh, Theodore Dreiser or somebody. <laughs> like I have to ask you about this one picture you have in here as far as photo selection of uh, Catherine by the Mantle. Yes. What makes this worthy of including in this picture other than uh, what separates it from just being a snapshot you took of Aunt Catherine when she came to visit? <laughs> well, um, Catherine is his, is his wife, his first wife, and um, they had just moved to New York City, so that's their first um, studio in uh, house, apartment in New York City. And you know, scholars have always said that Sheeler was uncomfortable photographing people, which of course, as you go through this book, you realize it's not the case. Um, but Catherine is the one of the first, other than his friend Morton Schomburg, that you begin to see him photographing. And he takes an, a series of um, pictures of her in their studio, but also um, a series of nude studies that we now, um, scholars think were a, a short film, but are now we now know only as stills. And then he investigated them um, in other media, so drawings and prints, etc. Um, but so Catherine is standing, um, I think he's starting to think about posing the figure. So he poses her in front of this very architectural setting, so their, their fireplace in their studio. Everything in the room is white except for Catherine in this incredibly dark black velvet dress. Behind her on the mantle are a number of objects that Sheeler used in his still lifes, both photographs and paintings. So they're objects that he had already begun to think about as subjects for his work. And then right behind Catherine is this photograph of a Greek Aphrodite sculpture that Sheeler had actually written about seeing in an exhibition um, at the Whitney studio where he was also um, a photographer at the time. And he talked about the purity of the form of this Aphrodite and in Greek sculpture in general and how that inspired him. And I also think that um, he was really interested in how the photographer who took that picture of the Aphrodite sculpture really set that figure against that white sculpture against this dark background. And I think that was really inspiring to him. So what you end up with is a composition uh, a photograph that is exploring lights and darks, whites and blacks, and how they are arranged on um, in his photograph. But it's also really a summation of the things that are inspiring him. So the purity of ancient Greek sculpture, which also Brancusi, who was a friend of his, um, really looked back to in terms of inspiring his own sculptural work. Um, and really sort of summing up where he is at that moment in time as 
um, as a photographer and as a painter. So even though it's a portrait of Catherine, it's also in a way a, a self-portrait of Sheeler artistically. Well, I wanted to ask about that because I, unless I missed it in, in the book, you have no pictures of Charles Sheeler. We have um, a portrait of him, I believe, in Charlie Musser's um, essay because where he's talking about Charles Sheeler and, um, and Strand. But yeah, we don't really have portraits of Sheeler in the book um, because we were looking at the Condé Nast photographs. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you know, it's interesting because I do think in a way that's a, that's a self-portrait. And he later um, takes a photograph of Constantin Brancusi in 1926, who's in town um, in New York City to uh, curate an exhibition of his work at the Wildenstein Gallery. And he spends a number of hours um, while he's there in Sheeler's studio. And while this photograph, I haven't been able to locate it, it is Brancusi posed in front of the mantelpiece in Sheeler's studio with these objects arrayed behind him. The same, same exact shot, only you take out Catherine, you put in Brancusi. And according to um, Sheeler's biographer, Brancusi wrote on the back, Brancusi in front of his background. So again, that's sort of like this portrait. Brancusi also saw that compositional arrangement as summing up what he was doing as a sculptor. So Sheeler was using it in the same way. And I think they both were fascinated with, um, with that composition and what it signified in terms of the objects. And Catherine becomes an object in the photograph. Now you are a curator at the James Michener Art Museum. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know about it, what should they know? Well, um, we are just about to celebrate our 30th anniversary. So we were founded in 1987 um, to really celebrate the arts of Bucks County. Bucks County is also known as the Genius Belt. Um, arts, theater, painters, photographers all came to the region because it was within easy commuting distance of New York and also Philadelphia. At that point in time, the trains came right up to Lambertville, which is on the just on the other side of the Delaware River from New Hope. And New Hope and Lambertville really had this colony of artists because they could hop on the train, they could go into Trenton and then to New York, they could go into Philadelphia really easily, and yet here they were in this bucolic countryside. So in the early 80s, uh, a number of leading figures, we call our founding trustees, began to think about uh, establishing a museum in Doylestown to really celebrate um, the arts of Bucks County and the wider region. And um, James A. Michener, the author, is a Doylestown native. And he was good friends with one of our founding trustees, the late Herman, Herman Silverman. And Michener was also an art collector. So it made sense to really think about um, Michener as being active in helping found this museum. So we're not a museum really that has much to do with Michener other than he was a Doylestown native. He was active in the founding of the museum and did um, help uh, develop our endowment. Um, we do have his office uh, replicated in the foyer of the museum, um, but he was, uh, you know, a really important figure and a, and a well-known name right in the 80s. He was sort of at the height of his um, power. So when you come um, to the Michener, we have 
art from the late 19th century all the way up to contemporary. Um, we're really known for our collection of Pennsylvania Impressionists. Um, we're also known for a number of leading modernists that um, were in the region, like Charles Sheeler, Ralston Crawford, um, Charles DeMuth, who's um, most closely associated with Lancaster, but who also painted in the region. Um, and another number of other um, modernists who are more closely associated um, with the region rather than a national context. Um, we're still a place where art is created, so we have artists who are still very active in the region. Um, we also have more national arts represented, um, painters, sculptors represented in our collection. We're building a great collection of um, Philadelphia artists as well um, in our museum. And so we're really a place where you will see works on display that you would not see, say, in the American wing at the Metropolitan, or you might not, you wouldn't even see them necessarily at the Philadelphia Museum of Art because they're more focused on our region, but they're equally as important because they're part of that larger national arts conversation. Now, this book is uh, the result of a show that you put together mm -hmm. uh, that uh, was at the uh, museum. When you put a show like that together, what do, you, what do you have to do? First of all, whose idea was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was my idea. Um, and in fact, almost from the very moment I started um, in 2014 at the museum, I was working on this exhibition. Um, you say in the beginning of the book it was sort of your mom's idea. It was sort of my mom's idea, yeah. My mom was, um, when I was in grad school, she was taking courses at the Fashion Institute of Technology to be a textile conservator. Um, and so, of course, when you're taking, um, when you're at the FIT, you also need to take fashion history classes. And so she was taking this class on um, fashion and photography and decided to write a paper on um, Sheeler's fashion photographs. And so actually she's probably the first one who went to the, before I went to the archive, because she actually went to the archive and looked at a number of photos. And I remember her telling me that she was doing this. And I was early on in my graduate program and working on my dissertation. And so I said, oh, okay, file that away. You know, we'll come back to that later. Um, so, as I said earlier, when I came to Doylestown, which is where Sheila lived for almost 20 years, I thought, well, this is a great moment to really think about um, Sheeler and his um, fashion photography. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's been three years. We've had a number of bumps in the road. Um, we've had paintings that we had hoped to borrow for the exhibition that we, you know, it turned out we couldn't borrow. And we had um, times when we thought the whole exhibition was not going to happen. You know, just general things that occur. Are there we, people who own Charles <laughs> Sheeler paintings who just will lend it to you for a show? Well, well, what happens is um, you generally start with other museums. So you, you think about what's the, the narrative theme of your exhibition. So primarily this was about 86 photographs that we selected from the Condé Nast archive of Sheeler's work. But because a lot of it had to do with fashion, I thought, well, let's bring in period fashion so that people actually get a sense of what it was that Sheeler was photographing. So we borrowed a number of pieces from um, the Museum of the City of New York, which, like the Metropolitan, actually has an incredible 
fashion and textile collection, but it doesn't get the same kind of press as the Met's collection does. Um, and all of the Museum of the City of New York's collection is New York focused. It was worn by someone from New York. It was created, you know, so it was, it was part of that whole environment in which Sheeler was working in New York in the 1920s. So we borrowed a number of pieces from them. We also borrowed a number of pieces from Drexel from their um, costume collection to bring a, a sense of um, reality to the photographs, right? So, um, and then a number of the paintings that we were unable to borrow because of condition or they were promised to other exhibitions, um, we replicated aspects of them and created stage sets for, um, for the viewers for, and for the mannequins with the fashion on them. So um, it really created this dramatic presentation of the photographs. You could get that sense of the city. You could get the sense of fashion. You could get a sense of how Sheeler was looking at the fashions themselves. And then we brought in some paintings that were made before he started working at Condé Nast and then after he was working at Condé Nast so that you could see the thread of the argument of the show that these Condé Nast photographs were actually pivotal to his development as an artist. But what happened was, um, unbeknownst to me, there were three other exhibitions that were including Schiller paintings in them that were opening right around the same time as mine. So a lot of the paintings I initially wanted to borrow, I couldn't borrow, but then that made me think of his work in a different light. These are unknown photographs. What are his most unknown paintings? And those are his still lifes. They're almost never on view because they're not his iconic industrial paintings. So, so that I was, includes the Bucks County paintings? Uh, yes, the barns? And, and the photographs, right. And so those are the ones, those and the New York City and the later factory paintings and photographs are the, the works that are usually on view. But he's treating, you know, his still lifes are in many ways very similar to his, his photographs of people and sculpture. They're all still lifes in the way that he composes them. And so it, it began to make more sense as I had to regroup and rethink of the exhibition to bring in um, a number of still life paintings, um, which we were able to secure, including one that was owned by James Michener, um, which was exciting to find. And um, so we created this whole environment that really put you inside Sheeler's head and allowed you to see what was inspiring him and how he then translated that either on canvas or on um, through the camera um, to, into a photograph. You also refer in the book to the Doylestown house. So that's the house that he rented. It's the Worthington house. Which Did he photograph it or paint it? He photographed it numbers, uh, numerous times and also painted um, the house. And the, one of the most iconic ones is the Doylestown stairs, which he's lying sort of like the cupboard under the stairs. So this house was built in the late 18th century. Is it still standing? It's still standing. It's a private house. Um, you can drive by it. There's a historic marker out, out in front of it. Um, it's not too far from Font Hill. And, um, and he actually rented it through the assistance of um, Harry Mercer, who's the, of the Mercer of, Museum. Of the Mercer Museum. And um, so he was lying on the cupboard. He was interested in just these little aspects, architectural aspects of this early American house. And he was fascinated by the simplicity and the structure of it. And so he would photograph just windows. He would photograph the staircase or 
the door to the staircase or opening the door to that staircase and photographing the deep dark recesses in the beyond because he didn't have electrical lighting so he used lanterns to create this very evocative mood in both his photographs and his paintings so in this one of my favorites he's lying on the floor underneath the stairs looking up and he takes a photograph and it's a little discombobulating until you start to get your head around it that he that that's the perspective that he's chosen and then he then paints it as well um, and you get this incredible spiraling of the stairs which then Sean and I discovered he revisited in an advertisement that he did for Condé Nast in 1930, I think it was, yeah. um, where he was uh, asked to photograph old um, issues, uh, back issues of Vogue. Um, you know, because even then they're trying to sell the back issues that haven't been sold. Right. And he... <laughs> yeah, it was an in-house in ad. <laughs> it yeah. was an in-house <laughs> ad. And so he takes that stack and twists it like this. And you get that same sort of dynamism that you had, you know, tw 10 years earlier in the photograph of the Doylestown house, translated then into this commercial photograph that he did as an advertisement for, um, for Condé Nast. So it's a real interesting right. synergy there. Are there works of his on display other places in Pennsylvania? I mean, this is being seen all across Pennsylvania. If someone lives in Pittsburgh or, or mm -hmm. Erie, or did, are there other museums you know um, of? The that Philadelphia have his? Museum of Art has a number of works by Shaler, both on paper, photographs, um, paintings. And um, unfortunately, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, those works are not at the moment on display because they're renovating um, the American the spaces for the display of the American collection. But in 2018, I know that there will be a, um, a grand opening of those galleries. So you'll be able to see um, at least one or two of his most iconic paintings, one of which we borrowed for the exhibition. Um, the Whitney also has an incredible um, number of his paintings, the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Um, uh, there are a number of places where one can see his work. Unfortunately, because his paintings are you know, relatively expensive, um, it's different to, uh, difficult to acquire one unless you're given one. So a lot of museums actually have the more affordable um, work on paper, so a drawing or a, a print of some kind, um, because that's you know you can actually purchase that. Um, without expending millions of dollars. <laughs> We're just about out of time. If people want to visit the Michener Art Museum, where do they find it? They find it in downtown um, Doylestown. It's right across the street from the Mercer Museum, and it's on Pine Street, and it's in the site of the old Bucks County Jail. Open every day? Open every day except for Monday. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with uh, Kirsten Jensen and Sean Waldron. Kirsten is the editor and Sean a contributor to this book, Charles Sheeler, Fashion, Photography, and Sculptural Form. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.